So this morning, I'd like to talk about um, the idea of care, um, basically as a, a way of developing what we talked about yesterday in terms of uh, how we frame uh, what it is that we call our practice. And I think this idea of care, about which we'll, we'll say a bit more in a minute, uh, provides us with a, uh, an overview, a picture, that can somehow uh, contextualize uh, everything that is included in what we call the practice. But before starting on that, I'd like to begin um, by offering some uh, further thoughts about the nature of uh, secularity. I mentioned yesterday how, um, and we picked this up in the afternoon as well, how for many of us the traditional forms of religiosity that often go hand in hand with Buddhism um, don't seem to work so well anymore. And that we find ourselves very much um, uh, in a secular culture, in a secular world, in which religion, um, at least in its outward manifestations, uh, feels uncomfortable or alien. And so this secular Buddhist movement, as it were, is an attempt to find a language and a form in which we can commit ourselves to the, the practice but in a setting that's not informed by dogmatic beliefs or a split of power between the priests and the laity and so on. But however appealing that might sound, once we begin to explore more carefully what it means to be secular, things get a little bit more complicated, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. One of the um, people who's given a lot of thought uh, to what it means to be secular is a, a man called Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian philosopher. A couple of years ago, he published a book called This Secular Age. <coughs> which unfortunately is about 600 pages long. And what he tries to do in, in this book um, is, is really clarify what do we mean by this word secular. And one of the points he makes that I find very helpful is that secularity um, has to do with the way in which we've come to think of time. Remember, the, the word secular comes from the Latin seculum, which um, means basically this age, this time. And in Italian you say il secolo, which means this century, in French siècle. So secular is tied up with this idea of our our current time, our age. 
Now, this is a word that's actually been used um, already in very traditional religious settings. In the Catholic Church, uh, you have what are called secular priests. This is not a modern thing, like secular mindfulness, although we'll come back to that. But there have always been secular priests in the Catholic Church. And what that means is that one is a priest, but one's concern or one's responsibilities lie in dealing with the affairs of the world. Um, whether that's pastoral care or whether it's um, supporting people in their work or dealing with you know, political or other issues that uh, people struggle with in their lives, a secular priest is one who lives in the world and concerns himself with those matters of the world, as opposed to a priest who devotes his life to, say, living in a, in, in a church or in a monastery and concerning himself with uh, the higher truths of the religion, the formal ecclesiastical business of the church. And what Taylor does is distinguish between what he calls secular time and um, a higher time. Now, the higher time is, in many ways, um, that time in which things do not change significantly. And to give an example of that, when you, um, for example, um, let's say we're in Korea or any Buddhist country, and once a day or on the full moon day and half moon day and new moon day, you'll go to the temple. And when you enter the temple, there'll be something that's probably been more or less the same for hundreds of years. There'll be a gilded image of the Buddha. There will be very well-known depictions of uh, religious stories, and when you celebrate a particular event, it'll either be the morning chanting or the evening chanting, which may have been recited that way for hundreds of years without any significant change, or it may be events in the year like the Buddha's birthday or the Buddha's uh, enlightenment day, which again refers to a time that doesn't really change. It's a kind of an eternal now. And for many traditional religious people, either on a daily or a weekly or a monthly uh, basis, you will uh, go to these sacred spaces and reconnect with something eternal, something that doesn't change, and something that therefore gives you access to what we might call uh, higher values. And that then becomes the, the sort of the framework or the setting that gives you um, maybe inspiration or a sense of reconnection with what is really important for you, as we spoke about again yesterday, so that when you return to your daily life, you do so from the perspective of those higher values. Now, what's happened um, 
in, uh, in the secularization of society, and this is something that's, of course, started here in the West, but is now becoming effectively globalized, is that people uh, find um, this kind of higher time increasingly irrelevant uh, or somehow uh, you know, not terribly meaningful for them. Uh, they've lost touch with it and live a life in a time that is basically just an endless succession of moments. And I think perhaps one of the ways in which we see that very vividly is in the, uh, in the, in the novel. Um, uh, in a novel, um, the characters, um, in, a, in a way, do not have recourse to that higher time or space. And one simply witnesses and participates in their lives as they go through secular time. Um, a very good example of this is a book I'm reading at the moment uh, by the Norwegian novelist uh, Karl Ove Knausgaard. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's, um, it's a six-volume novel called uh, My Struggle. And what's remarkable about it is that he describes in incredibly close detail um, the events of his, his ordinary life. You know, he'll spend 100 pages describing, you know, cleaning his grandmother's flat. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't sound terribly interesting. But what's remarkable is how he somehow illuminates or transcends the business of scrubbing the floor or whatever it is, um, by turning this into a highly accomplished work of art in which um, you start finding his secular experience utterly compelling. It's brilliantly done. And, but what's interesting in it is that religion or religious activity is, is completely peripheral. There is a passage where his father dies and uh, they have to discuss whether or not to have a church service. And it's a matter almost of just habit that they feel, yeah, we better do that. And so there's a meeting with a priest and they have the funeral. But the whole thing has really no reference point outside of the secular moment-to-moment -moment existence that just goes on from hour to hour, day to day, month to month, that he describes in, in extreme detail. Um, it's a world in which religion no longer plays an active role at all. And I sometimes sort of find myself saying, you know, you wouldn't be quite so miserable if you went on a retreat. <laughs> but he, he doesn't seem to be the sort of retreat-going sort of guy. And he just, he, he just continuously goes through this rather, uh, you know, sometimes very difficult, sometimes joyous life. But it's, it's eminently uh, secular. And I think what we're doing here, um, even though we have minimized um, 
the over-religious aspects. We have a Buddha image, we have an image here of Guan Yin. Um, we have um, you know, a schedule. But we are, in fact, I think, um, performing a, a religious ritual in this space. We have ritualized this space. And people often say, oh, why don't we do rituals? Thinking that we ring bells and burn incense and things. But actually sitting for 45 minutes on a cushion without moving, doing certain exercises, is a highly ritualized activity. And, and what we're doing, in a way, is we've stripped away some of the overt elements of the Buddhist religion, but we're focusing on what are actually extremely central practices. And in doing so, when we sit, we are stepping out of secular time. And we're returning to a time, a higher time, in... Um, Taylor's language, um, in which we seek to connect with what really matters for us in an, an ultimate sense, an ultimate concern. And I think we can perhaps see the, we can illustrate this quite clearly by going back to um, this now rather common term, secular mindfulness. So the question would be, what is the difference between a person who practices mindfulness for purely secular reasons and a person who practices mindfulness as part of an ultimate concern. Now let's take, for example, someone who has been prescribed a six-week course in mindfulness to deal with relapse into depression. And the person, therefore, will do effectively the same exercise that we do here, but with an end goal in sight, namely relapsing into depression. Or it could be any number of other things. But the point is, once that goal has been achieved, the meditation, the mindfulness, has served its purpose. You do it for six weeks, you may then do it once a day, but the whole point of the exercise is to achieve a particular goal that can be measured, that can then bring perhaps a greater well-being in your, in your health uh, as a person. A person, on the contrary, who does exactly the same meditation in, say, a retreat setting like this, or goes to a monastery, let's say, um, will be doing the practice not in order to achieve a particular short-term goal, although that might be a side effect, but will do that practice in order to somehow come to terms with their own existence, to come to terms with what the Chinese call the great matter of birth and death. And so what I find, for example, when I sit in meditation on a daily basis, is that sometimes the meditation can be pretty hopeless. In other words, my mind is terribly scattered, I'm not very focused, um, I'm feeling restless, many of the things that you're probably going through here. But in a strange way, that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because I'm not doing the meditation 
in order to get some describable result, some particular effect. I'm doing it in a much more, in a, in a way much more complicated fashion because for whatever reasons, I, I have a certain faith or, or trust or confidence that this exercise, this sitting in this higher time, um, restores me in some way or it connects me to many other values that I deeply appreciate and seek to live by. So mindfulness becomes, in that sense, uh, a rather different thing altogether than just a, an, a technique to achieve a certain goal. Now, one of the words the Buddha used to describe uh, the Dharma um, is akaliko, akaliko, and it literally means uh, timeless. The Dharma, he says, is timeless. And this, again, suggests that uh, the core teachings and values and practices exist outside of secular time. That, there's some, that they've been repeated, they've been passed down over generations, and what we're doing here is possibly not much different from what people would have done 2,000 years ago. In other words, these uh, instructions, these exercises, these qualities of mind um, somehow transcend our everyday ordinary concerns and put us in touch with something of a higher value. But at the same time, the Buddha also describes the Dharma as a sanditiko. He says it's sanditiko, akaliko. And sanditiko means clearly visible. So the Dharma is not something higher in, or eternal in the sense that it's outside this temporal, temporal experience. But actually, this Dharma is something close by, available, and accessible. In other words, each time that our habitual reactivity begins to sort of settle down, even for a few moments, and we find ourselves in a lucid, still, maybe empty space of mind, in that moment we behold or we experience the timeless Dhamma. And for this reason, perhaps, the uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the translator, translates Akaliko here as immediate, not timeless, immediate. So the Dhamma doesn't exist outside of secular time, but actually is imminent within uh, each passing moment. It's a possibility. It's... Uh, uh, it, it, it becomes present in that sense. So there's again a certain kind of tension between our secular lives, which every day is different, etc., etc., and those moments within our secular lives where we collect ourselves on a cushion or in a temple or wherever it might be, and reconnect to something that transcends uh, the 
day-to-day -day business that we have to get through. And our practice in that sense is a kind of conversation. It's a kind of negotiation, perhaps, uh, between what it is that we most deeply value and how we apply those values and those uh, qualities in dealing with the messiness of everyday existence. And that, and I think, in so many ways, is what we understand by this word practice. So what is this practice? Hang on. So, having framed what we're doing in that way, and having perhaps acknowledged now that we are creating a kind of sacred space on this retreat, we're creating a sort of temporary sangha or community amongst us for the seven days of this program. But at the same time, um, you know, we're engaging in a practice that we will seek to apply in our everyday lives when we get home. And it's negotiating this tension that I think for many of us becomes one of the big issues in our practice. How do we apply this in daily life? In other words, how do we translate what exists in a higher time, a timelessness, in uh, the secular, everyday drift of life as it unpredictably impacts us as we go through our business with our family and our work and our inner psychological stuff and so forth and so on. So to help us with that, I found um, a term uh, very useful. Um, I found a very useful term, um, which actually is part of, it appears in, in part of the Buddha's final statement before, before he died. Um, he dies, as you probably know, at the age of 80 in a grove of sal trees in the North Indian town of Kusinara, which is now called Kushinagar. And just before he dies, according to the texts, um, he makes a final pronouncement. He says, Vayu Dhamma Sankara Apamadena Sampatita, which means, and there's many different translations, um, things fall apart, tread the path with care. Things fall apart, tread the path with care with care. That's basically his last advice to his followers. So on the one hand, he's acknowledging that life is fragile, that we're vulnerable, that things don't last, that they are fleeting. And because that is the case, we need to tread our path in life apamadena, with care. Now, the word apamada is usually not translated as care. It's usually translated either as diligence or uh, vigilance or heedfulness. These are the commonest English 
translations. But I'm not sure they work so well. Um, the, so I'm going to explore using um, the word care. And care, I'm thinking of not as one specific element of the practice. And again, as you know, Buddhism is full of lists. I think Martine last night started out on the seven factors of enlightenment. You know, mindfulness, investigation of the dharmas, and you'll get the next five in the coming days. Or we have the five these and the four that's and so on. But care somehow encompasses them all. This is, I think, what's distinctive about Apamada. And um, to, to illustrate that, the Buddha compares Apamada to the footprint of the elephant, the elephant's footprint. And he says, just as the footprints of all beings that walk fit inside the footprint of an elephant, so care is the one thing that secures all kinds of good. And I think that's a very clear uh, in indication that care is, um, is somehow that which encompasses the whole practice. If we think of the virtues or the different qualities of mind that are uh, to be cultivated in this practice, mindfulness, compassion, loving-kindness, concentration, etc., all of them, he says, are like the footprints of, of animals that fit inside the footprint of the elephant. And he says this, again, in rather less metaphorical language. He says that, he says, all skillful states are rooted in and converge in care. Care, apamada, is the space uh, that somehow holds the totality of these virtues or skills. Now, in English, and here I think we're simply lucky, the word care has a rather good ambiguous meaning. We can be careful and we can be caring. I'm not sure if the Pali actually conveys all of that, at least in the word itself. But certainly I think the context suggests that uh, the practice in the wider sense is a practice in which we train ourselves to be more careful, to be more attentive, and here we might get vigilance, heedful, diligent, but also more caring. We care about our life. And this also has resonances with this idea of concern or an ultimate concern. It's a, it's a care, a deep care, uh, not only for ourselves and what our lives could be and how we wish to lead those lives, but also a care for others, a care for the world in which we live. And I feel, therefore, that this notion of care 
is sufficiently encompassing to convey all of this, really. But there's also another point here, and I hope I'm not going to get too technical, but we also need to notice that this word I translate as care, which is a-pamada, a-pamada, I'll write it on the board if you want, is actually in Pali and Sanskrit a negative term. A is not. Pamada, and this is the question, what does pamada mean? It, it means not something. Pamada um, means something like um, being negligent, being indolent, and very often it's compared to the condition of being drunk or intoxicated. And the, the fifth precept um, in, 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 in Buddhism is um, uh, literally is defined as um, refraining from substances that lead to pamada. It's the same word. Carelessness, uncaring, indolent, negligent, heedless, sloppy, drunk. So apamada, care, is the opposite of being drunk. But I don't think it suggests a kind of rather pious sobriety. I think it's somehow, we have to be careful that this is a metaphor. Um, so I think what we need to, 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 to do to really get to grips with this idea of, um, of care um, is to reflect for a few moments on its opposite, which is pamada, this state of, it's difficult to translate, carelessness, let's say, uncaringness. So what does that feel like, perhaps? Now, in some ways, it suggests um, a way of life in which you're somehow out of control. Um, that that you're, you're somehow not in charge of what's going on. And this, I think, is one of the experiences that is almost inevitable once we embark on the practice of meditation. We're given a very simple instruction. I don't know, what did Martin give the meta instruction this morning? But let's just take the example of paying attention to the breath. It sounds easy. You sit still and you watch your breath. And if you get distracted, you bring yourself back to the breath. Uh, nothing could be, much, could be much simpler, but also nothing could be much more difficult. Because what happens is that we... Um, encounter a mind that would rather do anything but focus on the breath. And this, I think, is one of the most revealing um, aspects of meditation experience, is that we realize how out of control we are. 
we realized that in spite of our, our, our most sincere intentions and motivations, we sit on the cushion and the mind goes berserk. Uh, goes into the past, goes into the future, or if there's nothing of any particular concern, it just kind of drifts. <laughs> now, a term that we find um, quite frequently in the early canon, and possibly it's a term the Buddha took from the Jains again, is the word asava. And asava is translated in many different ways in, in, the, uh, in English. It's sometimes translated as defilements. Um, it's I.B. Horner translates it for some reason as cankers. I don't know why. Um, or taints. Taints is another common translation of asava. But none of these words actually capture what the word literally means. Asava means uh, leakage. Um, it means to flow out. Um, I've started using the rather clumsy word effluence. It's the opposite of influence. Effluence. Effluence you makes you think of, um, you know, sewage disposal units. Uh, effluence are things that waste that just flow out, leak. And I think this becomes quite clear to us when we sit in our meditation and we try to contain our attention and our focus, but instead of doing that, the mind just leaks all over the place. And there's different kinds of leakage, the Buddha describes. There's karmasava, uh, the leakage of desire, although karma, not karma as in action, but karma as in karma sutra. It means kind of sensual desire. Um, this kind of just starts pouring out, leaking out uncontrollably. Or ditasava, um, views and opinions, uh, conceptions, ideas, thoughts, they just keep pouring out, leaking out. There's a very similar idea um, in Greek philosophy too. It's called akrasia. Akrasia. It's a term discussed by Aristotle. And it means very much the same thing. A, in Greek, as in Pali and Sanskrit, means not. Krasia means control. It means out of control. And it's sometimes translated into English as mental incontinence. <laughs> incontinence. In other words, there's something about our minds that's in incontinent. And again, you know, check it out. Is that what happens? <laughs> uh, I can relate to that. And um, it's, it's, I think, something that we find um, uh, pretty much in, in, in most traditions I'm familiar with. Uh, there's a very beautiful passage in one of the letters of St. Paul. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it. Um, where he, de he deplores the fact that despite his great faith in Christ, his mind keeps doing the very opposite that his faith inspires him to do. Or we find it in Shantideva, an 8th century Indian Mahayana writer, where he says something like, um, 
Um, although I wish to be free of suffering, I run towards it as though it were my dearest friend. <laughs> as, although I, I long to be happy, I destroy it as though it were my worst enemy. It's, it, this is akrasia, this is asava. And this, I think, is what we sort of come to terms with when we just sit still and pay attention to what's going on. We find we're going all over the place. A particularly good example of this is found in the essays of uh, Michel de Montaigne, the French essayist. And as some of you probably know, this, the, Montaigne lived in the 16th century uh, in France, not far from where Martine and I live, actually, quite close to Plum Village. And uh, he decides about the age of 40 that he's going to retire from public life as a diplomat, as a politician, as the mayor of Bordeaux, and retire to his country estate and devote himself, uh, in his words, he says he wants to leave his mind in, in complete idleness, just caring for itself, concerned only with itself, calmly thinking of itself. That's his fantasy, the retirement fantasy. <laughs> but... <clears throat> This is, he, this is how he described what actually happened. So he, he, he goes into his little tower and sits down at his desk. And to his surprise, he says, my mind bolted off like a runaway horse, taking far more trouble over itself than it ever did over anything else. It gives birth to so many chimeras and fantastic monstrosities, one after the other, without any order or plan. So again, Montaigne, and then he, he's an honest fellow, and he just describes what happens. He doesn't pretend, as we saw yesterday, he's, he's willing to be totally honest with himself and his readers. And he keeps coming back to this theme. He's really rather amazed that this, is, that this is actually what happens when he goes into his quiet, solitary retreat in his uh, country house. His mind's out of control. And in one of the later essays, which is in the third volume, and it's called On Repentance, uh, he says this. He says, he's again, talking about he makes himself into his subject. He just wants to write about himself, a bit like our friend Karl Ove Knausegaard. And, <laughs> and this is what he says, he, again, reflecting on the difficulty of just you know, focusing on his own experience. He says, I am unable to stabilize my subject. It staggers confusedly along with a natural drunkenness. So in other words, he, he really gets um, what um, happens when one tries to sit still. I mean, this point is also picked up by uh, another great French 
essayist writer uh, who came after Montaigne, uh, Blaise Pascal, in his Pensée, his Thoughts, which is very much a sort of similar body of material to Montaigne's essays. And there's a very famous passage in Pascal where he says that, and I'm paraphrasing, um, the, 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 the source of all human suffering is that people are unable to sit quietly in a room. Which again is a sobering thought, but having tried this for a while, we probably know what he means. That there's a part of us that would just like to race out of here and run away. It's not easy. So that gives us maybe a, a brief sense of what care is the opposite of. Pamada staggering about with a natural drunkenness, being unable to stay quietly in a room. What would the opposite of that be? So the Buddha, Aristotle, Montaigne, all of these people acknowledge that one of the, the core uh, challenges for leading a conscious, responsible life, if we really take this seriously and seek to internalize these values so that they become real, uh, the great challenge is to find a way of life in which we can somehow deal with this um, natural drunkenness. And as we probably are already aware, especially if we've done a lot of retreats and practices, it doesn't, you know, just because you do, you know, med med just because you meditate for a couple of years, doesn't mean this is going to become suddenly a lot easier. In fact, unfortunately, you could be a, an expert meditator and still have periods of meditation where everything is going crazy. It's not something we can just switch off. It seems to be part of the human condition. The human condition is pamadic, if you wish. And the condition to which one aspires, or the Buddha aspires, or Montaigne aspires, um, is a non-pamadic condition. One in which we've got this drunkenness, this bolting horse, somehow, you know, under control. But again, the word control is a word I suspect many of us are a little bit uncomfortable with because it seems to be going somewhat too close to the idea of repression, a kind of uh, gritted teeth, exertion, not to think certain thoughts, a kind of tightening up within ourselves, um, perhaps even a kind of self-hatred. And again, we know how easily religious uh, practice can uh, turn into a kind of self-punishment. This is one of the things the Buddha very much warned against. But we can understand sometimes, out of the sheer frustration we feel in just not being able to sit still or keep our minds still, at times, I've noticed this, you actually feel you want to punish yourself. You want to give yourself a hard time. And this is very much built into a lot of religiosity. It goes, in its extreme cases, into um, you know, self-flagellation. 
you know, whipping yourself or wearing a hair shirt or standing on one leg for 10 hours or all the things that Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews are. There's always one wing of people are into that kind of stuff. Um, I, I've seen Muslim, Shia Muslim pro, uh, processions in India where, you know, they, the, the, you know, a whole procession of men, no, no women, uh, walk through the streets and literally with, with whips, with razors attached and just, you know, and chanting. It's, it's kind of scary, to be honest. And behind the procession, there's an ambulance and doctors, and it's, it's, it's pretty grim. Um, uh, but fortunately, that's not something we're ever going to offer at Guy House. <laughs> I'd like to, to now just look at another passage which uh, touches on this. Um, and this is in the Dhammapada. Uh, verse number 21, if you want to look it up. And here it says, uh, Care, Apamada, is the path to the deathless. Carelessness is the path to death. The careful slash caring do not die. The careless slash uncaring are if are as if already dead. So, this idea of care and not caring um, is not so much just a sort of preference we may or may not have, but for the Buddha, it seems to be very central to what it actually means to live, to live fully, to live in a way in which we're not. Uh, constrained or held within the force of death. This is the language he uses, deathlessness. And what this implies is that a life that is out of control, that is endlessly distracted and wandering all over the place, is actually a mind that is not really alive that we're somehow um, under the power of what in Buddhism is called Mara, the demonic. Um, we're under the power of something that actually is inhibiting or preventing ourselves uh, to be fully alive. So it's a, in other words, we're not, this is a matter of life and death. If we wish to lead a full and flourishing life, the suggestion is that we need to come to terms with this kind of inner death in which we just drift and wander and get elated, get depressed, uh, and are very much just kind of being pushed and pulled by these forces. And again, there's a good example here in uh, Shantideva, <coughs> Um, whom I mentioned before, when he's talking about this, he says, it's though I were hypnotized by a spell. He says, while enemies such as hatred and craving have neither arms nor legs and are neither courageous nor wise, 
How have I been used like a slave by them? In other words, we begin to notice uh, by becoming more aware that very often we're simply uh, being uh, enslaved, we're becoming puppets that are being manipulated by fear, by hatred, by lust, by intolerance, by jealousy, by worry, by anxiety. And although we might have the, the, the self-image of being someone who's really rather together in their lives and responsible and so on, when you actually just stop and look at what's in going on, you find in many, many ways you're really you know, not in much control at all. So again, we come back to this notion of control. But this has to be a, a control that's not a kind of willful punishing of oneself, but somehow comes from an ability to, to hold the space that we find ourselves in with this quality of care. There's a caring going on. There's a carefulness, and there's also um, an intention to be more present, to be more alert, to be more diligent in terms of our own inner life. And what I think this points to in the practice of mindfulness is, on the one hand, learning how to develop a greater stillness within us, a quietness, and this is achieved, I think, by just learning how to remain for longer and longer periods on a single object, be it the breath, or be it sounds, or be it metta, or be it a koan, doesn't really matter. All of these practices enable us, over time, to find a kind of inner stillness. And that's very important. But the meditation is more than just that. The inner stillness, if anything, is just step number one. Because when we begin to experience more and more moments of quiet, the question is then, well, what do I do next? And it's here that the practice moves into what we call vipassana. Uh, in other words, a kind of an intense looking or seeing, uh, observing. And this is important because it opens up uh, a sensibility or as, as a, we become sensitized to the very first uh, stirrings or movements of, of fear, of worry, of whatever it might be. And rather than let them build up a kind of uh, momentum, uh, which in, after a while becomes almost irresistible, we learn to catch them and notice them at their inception. And the point is not to then stamp them out. That would be just another aversive reaction. But to be able to say, oh yeah, okay, this is happening now. And we don't have to fight it. 
We don't have to give in to it. We can just observe the play of the mind, the play of conditions that in this moment is giving rise to, let's say, anxiety or fear, whatever it might be. And the practice of mindfulness is the practice of being able to say, yes, this is what's going on, and it's perfectly okay. There are no enemies here, really. There's nothing that is uh, by itself a distraction. We can let it distract us, but it, in and of itself, this thought, this emotion, this feeling, is just a thought, an emotion, a feeling. We don't have to then build it into something more. We don't have to demonize it, and nor do we somehow uh, let ourselves get seduced by it. And that, I feel, is very close to the heart of what the Buddha means by care. This is a, a caring attitude, a careful attitude, And it's not arrived at by getting rid or destroying anger and hatred and desire and so on, but learning to live with them in a more careful and caring way. In other words, it's not a practice that is concerned with deleting or um, destroying anything at all. Because worry and fear and desire and all of these things are simply natural uh, consequences of our organism with all of its biological past, with all of its psychological habits, all of its cultural conditioning, coming into contact with an environment, a world, as well as an inner experience that quite naturally generates certain reactions or reactivity. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's simply what our life is doing in that moment. It's perfectly okay. It's fine. The challenge is not, therefore, to somehow enter into a state of war, but rather to be able to embrace what's going on with a kind of understanding, an intelligence, a curiosity... Um, maybe a certain kind of ironic, oh well, here we go again, kind of attitude, if you wish. But the point is to be able to be totally aware of what's happening, to be totally accepting of what's happening, but without getting caught up in it. To become, as it were, an observer, a participant, but not, as it were, a victim of what is arising within us. Now again, this perhaps sounds like a very nice idea, but um, of course it is extraordinarily challenging because for one thing, these, these things happen very fast. You know, we're sitting here and maybe we're, we've had a very good meditation for the first 10 minutes, let's say, Nice and still and quiet and peaceful, birds singing, you know, the rooks have quietened down. Great, you know. And the next thing we know, 
10 minutes has disappeared, or the bell goes, and we kind of come to, and we realize we've actually just been off somewhere. We've been, you know, out on cloud nine. We sometimes can't even remember where we've been. We've been in a sort of semi-conscious, if not unconscious state. And that's a bit alarming to start noticing that. That we so easily just get carried away. We sort of drift off. So mindfulness, awareness, care is about making a, a conscious commitment to be present with whatever is happening. Neither to be drawn to it in a compulsive way, nor to reject it in a compulsive way, but just to be able to say, yes, this is what is going on. And as we rest in that space, we are, as it were, resting in the space of the Dharma itself. The, 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 this quality of, of stopping, basically, um, of stillness, which allows, as it were, the beginnings of another perspective on life itself to begin to emerge, to begin to uh, be cultivated, to, to grow within us. And that, I think, is very much um, what this practice is about and what a caring and careful life might be about. 